Welcome to Tall Poppy, where we talk about leadership from a different angle. I'm your host, Tathra Street. If you can imagine a man who spent 30 years in a hard-nosed, high-pressure environment centered around money, you wouldn't think that the same person would write a book called Leading from the Heart. Can you imagine waiting five years after you publish to get mainstream acceptance for your thesis despite having all manner of scientific research to back up your work? Mark C. Crowley balances his patience with his passion for this approach to leadership. In his book, he explains why leading with heart is needed now, but in a really rational and logical and very compelling manner. He really impressed me and affirmed my own work. We had a great conversation where he talked about how he got to where he is now, speaking at large companies, working with organizations like Google, and he talks about what, it's, what it was like when he first wrote the book compared to now. There's a few spots in there where it's a bit garbled, but you'll get the gist. Have a listen. We've got Mark Crowley, who is a thought leader on leadership. Welcome, Mark. Thank you very much, Tathra. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited about this conversation because I've just been reading your book and I've been following some of your work, some of the articles that you've read on LinkedIn or that you've um, posted on LinkedIn. Um, and I feel like there's a real synergy with, you know, what I've been thinking about leadership and, you know, especially how in the book you are brilliant at being able to um, talk about the importance of leading from the heart in a way that is really, um, uh, I'll, I'll say palatable in a world that is a bit, uh, let's say, heart phobic. So, um, <laughs> so tell me a little bit about um, why you wrote the book Leading from the Hut. Well, that's a very big question, as you can imagine. I, I think what I will tell you is that my original ambition was to share certain leadership practices that I knew were really uncommon uh, in the world of business and to introduce them to business leaders with the intent of saying, if you do these things, if you do these practices and you do all of them, you will get extraordinary everything, loyalty, engagement, productivity, you know, people beating a path to work for you. And so that was the original intention. And I had a friend of mine who told me that people would need a better understanding of why these work if you're trying to change people's opinions. And so that forced me into really digesting what it was that was the common denominator of everything that I was doing. And one day it just, it just hit me that what I had been doing in my career and had a 20 plus year career in financial services, very senior levels was I was affecting the hearts of people. And I remember like instantly thinking, I figured it out. And then realizing I've wasted a year of my life because the minute people hear the word heart, they think I'm some spiritualist or religious nut or somebody who doesn't get business. That's kind of the interpretation that people have given to me. And so it was more of a, you know, this whole idea of leading from the heart I knew was going to be summarily rejected by the very people that I used to work with Mm -hmm. who never really understood what I was doing to get great results. But when you put it in paper and say, leading from the heart, I knew universally that it would be rejected. And, and at the same time, as I started to digest what could possibly give me support and validation for my thesis, I found extraordinary information from all walks of research, including science, that boils down to the fact that it's really the heart that drives human behavior in the first place. Mm. Instead of rejecting it, 
we need to embrace it um, from a giving standpoint, meaning as a leader, but also to recognize that in the, the, the human beings are driven by what their heart tells them to do. Absolutely. Am I happy working here? Am I cared for? Am I, am I supported? Is this a place that I feel I'm being fulfilled? These things really matter to people. And we've disregarded them for a long, long time. And I think that's starting to um, hit the mainstream a little bit more now. And I think how well-received your articles have been is um, a, a true testament to that. And I'd like to get back to that in a moment. But I wanted to just take a step back and, and acknowledge that, you know, you start the book with a really heartbreaking description of an abusive upbringing and that this inspired a drastically different approach to that brought you unprecedented success at work. Um, and, you know, clearly you bring a lot of the, the personal in here, but not in a way that's out of balance in any way. But I think it's something that makes it very relatable. Um, it, are you getting any kind of feedback about that as far as, you know, where you've come from and, and how you got to where you are? Are there people saying, yeah, that happened to me too? Or, you know, what, what kind of feedback are you getting? Have you ever had anybody in your life that you just realized it had insight for you that was for you that was really just incredibly valuable that you didn't even question it. I don't know if you've ever had anybody in your life just be a guide, but I, mm. I had a, a, somebody who told me um, that I needed to tell that story in the mm. book, and that was never, ever my intention. Right. And I will tell you that writing it was the most difficult thing I've ever had to do in my I life. I, I thought it was going to kill me sort of reliving my mm. whole upbringing in a sequence you know you live it day to day but you don't put the pieces together and I had to do that in order to write that mm. um, and so I took her advice but once the I started to realize that this was essential to the story to give people an understanding of how I learned to lead so very differently mm -hmm. and what motivated it so that people could take me credibly um, I built it into my speaking presentation and I speak for an hour and a half in front of, you know, very large corporations and, you know, large audiences of people. And I'm giving all sorts of incredible data and research and putting it all together and almost universally what comes up. This just happened. I was in New York last week and I did this. And the, the immediate response was, what a story, because it's the most human aspect of this. Once people hear the story and hear how I dealt with that upbringing, what I did and what it taught me, I think it really makes people receptive to the whole idea in the first place. So um, I just keep going back to this person telling me I needed to put it in this. It's very untraditional to put personal stories like that into a leadership book, but I think it was the best advice I ever was given. So I think people are really responsive to it is, is really the point. Beautiful. So let's talk a bit about... Um you know, publishing the book and getting some, some, you know, advice around how to, uh, you know, put it out there. What, what kind of um, experience did you have when you were trying to get it marketed? So um, the, the, the more, the most interesting story that I could share on that, that's a really interesting question that you would ask. Uh, I actually went and spent a lot of money in a marketing specialist for somebody who principally works with authors. So she helps people figure out, how, what their niche is, who's their audience, and how do you market it. Mm -hmm. And so after I wrote this very big check, she came back and she said, you're not going to like what I have to tell you called Lead from the Heart or you will patently fail. And I was really kind of shocked by this because this was the working title of the book and I was really convinced that this is what I wanted to do. 
And what she was telling me was, the world is not ready for you in this message. And she was right. She was absolutely right. She said I would fail, which wasn't true. But initially, she was right in the sense that the world really hadn't, you know, when the book first came out, I met with tremendous resistance as people, always, as I said, you know, thinking that this is the last thing we want to do is to bring heart into business. So anybody advocating for this doesn't get what we do. So, you know, good luck with that. But ultimately, I think what's happening now is that we're moving into it as a society where suddenly we're like, tell me more about this. We're a little more open-minded to it. And I think hearts are opening. I mean, I say that literally and, 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 and mean it in the sense that maybe a few years ago when the book came out that we weren't really interested in finding more about this. But as I've written a lot of articles and have been able to demonstrate more and more of this is coming out of so many different worlds. It's coming out of psychology. It's coming out of medicine. It's coming out of the research on why people are so unhappy in their jobs globally. And so I've got so much evidence that people are like, I wonder if this guy's right. And it took a long time, but now I'm beginning to see, I mean, it's really interesting that this book came out almost five years ago and it's a bestseller now. It started to be a bestseller this summer and it sustained itself this way. And I'm like, well, what changed? It wasn't the book. <laughs> it's people's receptivity to better, you know, make, make themselves better leaders, but also to create better workplaces where people stick around and they collaborate and they cooperate and they enjoy being with each other and they enjoy doing good work and they ultimately, you know, make their companies, you know, more successful. This is what I think people are looking for and they haven't found it. So I think people are finally saying, well, let's give the heart guy a shot. <laughs> which is about time really because yeah I really like how you named that there's been a, a shift you know in the 80s you know something changed in, in how we relate to each other to ourselves to our you know having a sense of, of meaning in, in life um, and I think you know that's coming to a head more and more and especially around the world as we see different examples of leadership you know changing and being less heart-based you know less caring and and um, you know about valuing people from a political perspective, it's interesting to me that we're seeing more of that uh, on a business level, that people are, you know, even just a, a couple of um, episodes ago, we spoke with um, Mark LeBusk, who had, you know, a phenomenal results just in treating people like human beings and, and trusting them to make decisions and, and do the right thing. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting to me that yeah, that shift is really coming to a head at the moment. So let's let's go back to um, as far as, you know, g getting the word out. And, and, you know, you've written for all sorts of um, different publications. Can you talk a bit about um, how things went with Fast Company and, and the shift that you made to LinkedIn? Fast Company was very receptive to most of my work because their principal audience for a very long time has been the technology world. And, you know, what people – People associate technology with sort of advanced leading, so their leadership practices are unique. They're the first ones to embrace all the perks and flexibility with work hours and where people worked and all that. And people, many people have told me, well, that's technology, you know, that's Google and that's Facebook and we can't do those kinds of things here. And so I was speaking to an audience that was already on board with what I was talking about and wanted to learn more about it. And so those articles were very well received. And 
So that was very validating for me. And a lot of it, I think, honestly, just to kind of pinpoint something you just said, a big reason for this isn't that they're technology firms. It's that they happen to be attracting some of the youngest people in the workforce. Uh, Google's median age is 29. Facebook is in the same era. So mm-hmm. what you're dealing with is companies saying, how do we keep highly, highly talented, skilled people? How do we get them to come here and how do we get them to stay? And so they started to study what are the things that need to be done, and it all came down to the heart. Google actually is one of the most caring organizations because they figured it out. This is what it all boils down to. So with the Fast Company articles, I think I've written 24 different articles. They were very well received, had you know really large audiences because I think they were looking for that information, and I was able to sort of – leverage what I knew. Like I've been to Google and I've seen what they do and I've talked to their talent management people and I picked up things from them, but I also got validation on things that I've been doing throughout my career. And so it just really validated it. So I think people looked at that and said, this guy really understands our world when I really had 20 years of almost 25 years in professional experience of literally managing this way. So I've been doing it my whole career, but that was tremendous validation. But Fast Company sort of moved into more of shorter articles. And so almost as if, you know, the universe was saying, time for you to move on, Mr. Crowley. You know, we're, we're going to introduce you somewhere else. Uh, I posted an article about why people aren't why with all the focus on engagement, how come engagement hasn't gotten any better? And it drew a huge response. I posted it on LinkedIn. And this is a business audience. And if I had reversed it, if I had started on LinkedIn and then went to Fast Company, it wouldn't have worked that way. It's worked this way because people are becoming much more responsive to these kinds of ideas in business than they were when I started with Fast Company three years ago. So I'm now being able to bring the same message with different data, but different interpretations and so forth, but essentially the same message to a mainstream audience. And I think my understanding of millennials, this article that I wrote recently has had like 700,000 views on it. And it's largely because millennials are forcing this on businesses. And because they're already 40% of the job market, companies are like, we got all these kids here and they're all demanding and they want so much and we're not willing to give it to them. And what do we do? Because, you know, they're like they're running around saying these people are so needy and we we don't want to be giving these people the the work exchange is you get a job and you get a paycheck. And that's all these people should be getting. And how come they're coming into the workplace asking for so much more? Well, they're the same people that raise these kids to say you deserve more. You need more. Don't don't underestimate what your value is. It's so interesting that the people that are in management roles that are, you know, of my baby boom era are pulling their hair out saying, you know, who raised these kids? They're just different kids with the same kind of an attitude. That's awesome. I love that. Largely, you know, I think back on my own career, I worked with some really horrible bosses and I sucked it up for all those years and worked incredibly long hours with not a lot of thanks in many cases, all because you think I'm lucky to have a job. I'm lucky to have a career And the millennials, we raised them to say, you know what, you shouldn't take that. You shouldn't just, you know, basically accept anything that doesn't honor you, that doesn't value you, that somebody isn't spending time teaching you. You shouldn't work there unless you find that. 
And so many people in my era look at the millennials and they say, well, you know, they're, they're terribly disloyal. And I'm saying, no, they're not disloyal. They're just looking for a place to land. They're looking for that one company that is going to give them what they need. And I just happen to believe those are human needs that every generation has always needed. It's just the millennials are demanding it. So this is a big reason now why I think people are like, tell me more about this heart thing. <laughs> because the millennials are really kind of driving this. Which is fantastic that that's actually really being you know, pushed by this next generation. And I'm curious, so given, you know, you wrote the book five years ago and, you know, clearly the, the world has changed. What, what else has changed? Like what else have you learned in that time that, that, you know, if you were to write it again, that you might add in? Um, one of the most fascinating pieces of information came out of an article I wrote uh, just a few months ago, actually. And in the world of, you know, it's one, of the, one of the things that I find the most fascinating is that I keep finding validation for my thesis, which is that feelings and emotions drive human behavior and that the heart is really the driver of engagement. It's really, you know, what we feel here translates into what we think and do. Absolutely. And so I interviewed a woman named Barbara Fredrickson. She's a professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and she's one of the stars of the positive psychology world. And okay. so I told her my thesis and she said, okay, I have two things that are going to make your day. The first piece of information she shared with me is that, and something I didn't know at the time uh, that I wrote the book, and frankly, I didn't know until she told this to me, was that all emotions are short-lived. So, for example, you're married, get in an argument with your husband, you start throwing some plates, and then it stops. You know, it doesn't go on the next day until you destroy the whole house, right? It's just mm -hmm. in that moment of anger that gets out, and then you move on. Same thing with all the, all the positive emotions. Like if you're really excited about something, you're, you're going to feel that and you're going to feel it and then it goes away. So she said, so what your thesis is, is that by caring about people, you, but as a leader, if you're growing people, making people feel safe, giving them a sense that you are happy they work for you, looking out for them as an advocate, care about what's going on in their real life, appreciate them, reward them, do those kinds of things, you're giving them the steady dose of positive emotions. And because emotions aren't long-lived, you have to do that if you want to sustain how people feel good in their work to sustain engagement. So it's so really about practice rather than a silver bullet. It's a practice. You have to be doing this and you have to be doing it consistently. So people have to work and they have to get their work done. But if they know they're valued, they know their boss has their back, they know their, their boss is thinking about ways to grow them and le legitimately does that, you know, that gives them voice and an opportunity to, to share ideas. People are getting this ding, 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 ding of positive emotions. But this is more of the fascinating side of this that I think is deeply human and will challenge some people, but it blew my mind when she said it. She said, we think about positive emotions as being things like awe and joy and excitement and love. And she said, but really what we've been able to determine is that any experience of positive emotion is really boils down to love. So when you're feeling awe, you're feeling love. When you're feeling excitement, when you're feeling nurtured, you're feeling love. And so um, the very last thing that I say to people in my speeches is that if you remember anything from what I've talked about for an hour and a half, remember this. 
love your people. Love your people. Because it's really, you know, and I originally started saying it as well, you know, it's business love. But then I started to realize I'm really talking about human beings and I'm talking to grown-ups. This is what moves the world. This is what people really need in their lives. And so can we talk, positive emotions translate that into love. So can we talk a little bit more about, I love this idea that love is work-related. So can, can you unpack that a little bit? Like, yes, love your people. It's like when I think of that, I go, well, duh. But obviously we've got, you know, this emotionally phobic society that, you know, they look at the title of your book and, you know, the business community you know, proverbially runs screaming. But if they open it up, they can see, you know, the way that you explain it, which is brilliant. But if you could just unpack the concept of love is work related for me. So I really appreciate that. I love the word unpack um, because I have to kind of come back and circle around and say, I'm a business guy. I'm a hard-charging, sales-driven guy who routinely was, uh, saw his teams produce extraordinarily, and I've always been rewarded, and I had very big jobs, senior-level jobs in the dog-eat-dog world of financial services. So you can't look at me. I don't want people to look at me and say, you know, he's Mr. Softy here talking about love in the workplace. What I'm really saying is here's Mr. Hard Guy. If you ask people who work for me to use one word to define me, they would not use the word heart as much as I would love for them to do that. They would say demanding. And that's actually okay because at the end of the day, business is about getting work done. But if you're supporting people on a human level, and it goes back to Maslow, it's making sure that people feel safe, making sure that people feel connected. You know, that's a hard thing, interestingly enough. But these are two very basic needs. When you start at the pyramid, it's down here. If people don't feel connected to the company, to you as the boss, if they don't feel safe in their jobs to the extent that you can give that to them, then nothing else matters. But once they have that, it's are you looking out for them in terms of developing them, growing them? One of the interesting stats that I just learned for an article that I just wrote, 91% of people that left jobs last year for a pro- or to, that took a promotion last year in America left their company to do it. And so that means that not enough bosses are advocates and looking out for them and saying, I, these people are on loan to me, not here permanently, and I'm going to help them grow so that they can be prepared to take another bigger job. So when those happen, you want to be promoting people. How about appreciation? How, that's true love. You know, it's thanking people, acknowledging people, telling people how much their work matters and connecting what they do to a broader mission so that people have a sense of meaning. This is really what moves the world. This is really what really gets people. So it boils down to love in Barbara Fredrickson's world, which I absolutely have to agree with her when she when she described it this way. But if, if you don't use the word love, if you just want to get results, just care about your people. But it has to be authentic. Mm, it absolutely. can't be faked. If you're going to fake this, people can feel it because feelings drive behavior and you're going to destroy trust. So if you want to do this, you have to really want to do it. And if it's not in you, don't try because you'll actually create more harm than good. I, I like how you described or I guess brought an analogy around, you know, if you're going from sort of status quo, old school, um, traditional management styles to coming at it from a, a heart-based perspective, that it's a bit like, you know, moving from the U.S. to the U.K. and, you know, you don't have to learn a completely different language, but you, you've got to learn to, you know, drive on the other side of the road. 
So can you say a little bit more about, um, you know, for, for those out there that recognize that there's value in this, but at the same time, they're in a, an environment uh, or a culture that doesn't really acknowledge or um, understand the emotional uh, and heart-based element of it. What advice would you have for people who are really wanting to, um, you know, learn to drive on the other side of the road? That's um, so it's such a fantastic question. I'm like sort of stunned by it, to be honest with you. A lot of people hear this. Well, first place to really start. And it, it really just sit down and talk to your people and find out what's going on in their life. Just say, hey, I just want to spend a little time with you. And it doesn't mean probing into people's business. You know, it's just say, let people tell you what's going on. Just say, tell me, tell me, tell me something about you. What, what have you been doing? You know, and people can choose what they tell you. So they're not going to say, you know, I um, have a horrible home life and, you know, people are just going to tell you what they want to tell you, but it's just the interest. Just demonstrate that you care about people beyond the work. And this is where we get, we trip up is that we think, well, if I spend 15 minutes with this person and ask them what's going on, you know, what you do over the weekend and, and um, you know, what are your ambitions? How can I help you grow? We, we, we think we're wasting time. We think we're actually harming our productivity. But when people leave your office and they know that you genuinely ask them, what's going on in my life? Like, what did I do on the weekend? Like, he really cares. Or she really cares. And it inspires people. It's like they want to, like, do more for you because they're so grateful because it's so uncommon. So start there. I mean, the book lays out four specific practices and part of that is picking right people that are going to fit in your culture so you're working with the right people. But it's getting to know them. It's growing them. It's appreciating them. So you, it's not really all that hard for people once they understand what they are, as long as they're willing to commit to these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And the sad truth is not everybody's cut out for this. Um, one of the interesting statistics that Gallup gave me a few years ago is that um, this will sort of rattle you. Is that I think I know only, what you're going to say. Only a third of people on the planet have a real inclination to care about the success, well-being, and growth of other people, other than their own children and family. So they just look at business very, you know, sort of matter of fact. It's like you have a job, you get a paycheck. If you do a good job, we'll give you maybe a little bit more. If you don't, we'll find somebody else to replace you. And this has been our model for you know over a century. But it doesn't really work anymore. It never really worked, but people got away with it because they needed to meet their basic needs. Now that people are meeting their basic needs on a fairly routine basis, people demand so much more in exchange for work and they're willing to go for it. So organizations really have to start now to discern. I call it a binary question, which is if you're interviewing for a manager role at any level, you have to be persuaded that the person in front of you, before you say we're making you a manager in our company, has demonstrated in their career that they really do care about other people, that they help them grow, that they nurture them, that they value them. Because if you can't find that, even if somebody's really technical or a sales star and they get numbers, they're not going to work. It's just not going to work. And managers affect so many other people. So we think, oh, well, this is the greatest salesperson in the world. She'll be a great sales manager. But that's not often what happens because great salespeople tend to be singularly focused on their results, on their recognition, on their pay. And then we bring them over and we think they're going to be a great sales manager. 
they don't want to share, they don't want to teach, they don't want to, they don't want other people getting recognition because they're threatened by it. So we shouldn't be putting that person into a management role. We need to find a way to give that person title and status in the organization and bring in somebody who has a greater inclination to grow and coach people to be much more, maximize human potential. This is the model that we need to embrace. So was this the third indicating what's happening now? Because I, I, the impression I got was, in, like from your, from your book, you talk about there's the massive potential for us to, you know, really step into this and to, to um, you know, produce phenomenal results. But I also remember hearing, I can't remember if it was um, in something that you wrote or Gallup, um, around the idea that there are some people who are just, you know, hardwired to not be able to, um, you know, whether it's being empathetic or um, have like the specific leadership traits. And I really struggle with that. What I studied in, in university was one of them was around anthropology, and it really debunked this idea that people are uh, innate in, in most of the things that we give um, credit for, that, that a lot of it is actually learned because there are very, very few cultural universals. And yeah, so do you know that the bit that I'm talking about as far as the, the, the stats around like people being hardwired to be either able to support? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting because Adam Grant in his book, Give and Take, um, which, you know, has also concluded the same thing that, you know, a large portion of our society are takers um, or or matchers where, you know, in other words, in the, tri- in the in the options of givers, takers and matchers, a taker just I don't care what goes on between you and me as long as I get what I want. A matcher is someone who. If I do something for you, then uh, you're going to expect something in return for it. And then the giver is just somebody who has an inclination to be supportive of other people. And he's pointed out that it's a smaller percentage of the society than, than we would like to see. So can you shift that? I'd like to think so, right? I, I, I don't think we should get caught up in, in my part of the one-third or two-thirds. I think we should be saying, you know, this is the model. Because part of what I think I'm here to do is to give men particularly, but also women, permission. I'm saying it's okay to lead like this. It's not just okay. It's scientifically proven to work. But I'm really saying as a man who's worked in financial services in a very aggressive work environment, that if you do these things, that you'll be successful. You'll be more successful than you are. And you can learn these things. If you can love a dog, if you can love a baby – if you can love your own children, then you can love your people, right? Why wouldn't you? Beautiful. You know? I love that. <laughs> Actually, that has me thinking about the what we were talking about earlier with the, the medical uh, insights. Can you talk a bit about that? Um, specifically the medical insights, meaning around the science of the heart? Yeah, well, not, not the heart math so much, but the cardiology com- component that you were talking about before we started recording. Uh, well, those are the two th- that is, you know, the heart and cardiology are essentially the same. And what we, um, it, very interestingly, I interviewed a, a world-class cardiologist, a heart surgeon, and she told me she graduated top of her class at New York University, NYU. And when she went to medical school about 25 years ago, she was taught that the heart is just a pump, that when they opened up the, the heart 300 years ago, all they saw was the bumpity, 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 and they couldn't see any intelligence. So they closed it up and said, this is where it's all at. This is where all your cognitive ability is. In the brain, right? yeah. In the brain. 
And so think back 300 years ago, we're talking about the 1700s, you know, they didn't have the technology that we have today that can demonstrate, you know, that there might be something more to it. So she said, well, why do we say things like follow your heart and have a change of heart and learn it by heart if we weren't sort of at least concerned that that science might be wrong? And that's language that we use in every, you know, every um, culture. So she said that we now know that, you know, more recently, like in the last 20 years, they've been able to distinguish that the heart and mind are connected, that the heart actually sends more communication to the mind than vice versa, and that our feelings actually influence our choices. They influence our reasoning. And so, and now there's just all sorts of science coming out that's validating this, mm -hmm. but there's, there's some, a co what they call a coherence when the singles between the heart and mind are sort of ideal, which ironically happens when people feel valued and supported and cared for. Funny that. that. You know, right? So that puts people into their optimal level of performance. So when we're giving people this steady donate between the heart and the mind, which puts people into their optimal level of performance, which means the heart is really what drives people to do their greatest work when they're feeling supported, when they're feeling safe, when they're feeling valued, it creates this harmony and they're like, okay, I can do my best work here. Mm, so yes. this is what the heart science is showing now. Yeah, and that's what I think of as integrated intelligence. We're not just using the stuff that is in our, our head. We're also using what's in our heart, but also our body and our gut. And, you know, because I think there's there's also some research indicating that there are a lot of nerves in the, you know, in the gut, in the intestinal area that's also connected to the heart and, and to the brain as well. They're showing now that, that intelligence is distributed through the body, that it's not just in the mind or in the heart. But I'll tell you an interesting story that's in the book that I think might blow um, you away and it'll certainly blow away some other people. But there was a doctor named Paul Pearsall. He's, a, he's, a, he's deceased now. He's a professor at the University of Hawaii in America and studied the intelligence of the heart more than just about anybody else. He wrote a fantastic book called The Heart Code, if anybody wants to read it. The Heart's Code. Oh, yes. And so what he did was he went to, he was a speaker and spoke at conventions. And so he was speaking in, in Arizona to a group of psychiatrists and psychologists. And he's actually explaining what he's learned about the intelligence of the heart. And so then he did a Q&A at the end of it. And some woman, you know, they waited their turn. The woman came up to the microphone and she starts sobbing uncontrollably and couldn't get a word out edgewise. And he just patiently waited for her to compose herself. And finally, she said, Dr. Pearsall, I have a, I think it was a 10-year-old girl who's a patient of mine. Her mother brought her to me because she's having these terrible nightmares. She wakes up in the middle of the night screaming. And she is a heart transplant recipient. And the girl who gave her the heart was murdered. And my little patient, my little 10-year-old girl who received the heart, believes that she knows who killed her donor. I'm getting chills as you're talking. I've, I've heard the story, but it's amazing. Like, this is just like, what? So he calls his wife and says, I'm not coming home. I'm staying here. And does several sessions with the girl and with her psychologist or psychiatrist. I forget which one it was. And ended up going to the police. And they... The girl knew so much about what happened that they were not only able to capture the person, but convict the person yeah. of murder. 
It's mind-blowing. The heart has its own intelligence that it's not always passed on, but they say sometimes a heart transplant will, you know, change the taste in music. They'll go from country to rock and roll or they'll <laughs> be a vegetarian and like chicken McNuggets. All of these have been documented. Yeah. So that just shows you there's there's plenty to this. But mm. that one just blew my mind when I heard it because it's like, OK, I, if, if you need more convincing then after hearing that story, then, you know, you're, you're, you're just never going to get on board. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So I'm just, I just want to ask a couple of um, the questions that I ask uh, most of my guests. Um, So the first one I want to ask is what does leadership mean to you now that is different than it did earlier in your life? That's a, you know, that's a hard answer for me because I think I instinctively have led the way that I'm advocating for my whole life. I'm just stronger in my convictions that this is a way that everybody needs to lead. So I just went and did my business and never questioned it. And I had people in my 40s, people who had worked for me for many years, starting to tell me that I managed very differently. I was like, really? I mean, I had no self-awareness whatsoever. I was on auto drive because it worked. You just don't question it. And once I started to question it, then I started to refine it. And once I started to refine it, then I started to investigate ways of validating it more and so I just have greater conviction than I've ever had before. But this is the way I've led my whole life very successfully. So belief in it than I ever did. Beautiful. I love that answer. And what advice do you have for people who are wanting to either start a business, write a book, um, you know, do a, a creative project or, you know, bring a, a change making initiative into the world, but they're a bit reluctant because they're, you know, maybe it's heart oriented and they recognize the sort of uh, emotionally phobic society that we live in. What, what, um, what advice would you have for people who are wanting to give, give it a go? Well, I hope that what they're taking on wasn't, you know, as we've talked about, there was a, a, a huge resistance to these ideas when I first launched them. And so I found that I've had to have had a lot more patience and courage than I imagined I would have. Um, you know, and I've had people say, well, if you knew it was going to take this long, would you have done it? I said, well, no. So they go, well, that's why you were told, <laughs> you know, you just have to go out there. If you're, if you're a path cutter, then you're going to have to be, um, you know, not just courageous, but resilient and persistent. And I would say, so the first piece of advice is to surround yourself with people who not only believe what you believe, but who have a little extra to give you to sustain you. Because I've needed that, you know, I've had plenty of doubt around whether I made the right choice to commit my life to this. And, you know, I I always thought, if I get a parade, I don't want it after I'm dead, you know. (laughs) 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 I want to see the success of this now, you know. Um, And I'm kidding, but at the same time, you know, I've devoted my life to this and I want to see it be successful. And in the early stages, it wasn't. But there were people that said, this is who you're meant to be. This is the work you're supposed to do. Now dust yourself off and get back out there. And that really helped me. So I think having somebody, a spouse, a friend, you know, colleagues, people that have your back who will really make sure that you are in it for the long haul. Because I think what most of have a great idea, have a great business, and they hear stories about people who are overnight successes. Um, I don't know that many overnight successes. It takes a lot of work and a lot of determination and a lot of self-belief um, and a lot of humility too. You know, accept that it 
it's not going to happen overnight, except that you're going to have to pay your dues to get there. I, I think um, that's what I've learned, you know, and, and it's and it's I've had a lot of success in my career and I've had a lot of fast success where I set a plan in action, build a team and start seeing immediate results. And that's not how this went. That's not how it, this was meant to be. This was meant to build over time and have people be persuaded over time and sort of warm up to these ideas. And that takes a lot of time. And so you, you just sort of have to recognize that if you're going to be doing something that's changing the world, you're, you, you, you can't expect that it's going to happen overnight or even over a month or six months. It's going to take a long time. Beautiful. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I really appreciate it. I loved it. Although there were a few bits that got caught in the airwaves, you got the gist of the main points. Mark's ability to be both deeply committed to his ideas and seeking evidence to support what he's learned reinforces its validity. I really admire the path he's taken, his willingness to share where it's come from, and, the, and turning the pain of being abused and neglected as a child into a different style of leadership. And he wasn't even aware of it until he got feedback from his colleagues in his 40s. I recommend reading his book. It explains his thesis very clearly and, and plainly. And being someone who was already aligned to these ideas, I was really impressed at how logically he outlined it. It just made so much sense. It doesn't surprise me that it's gaining traction now. And it's exciting that in the last five years, this shift has taken place to the point where Mark's work is gaining traction and his book is now a bestseller. I imagine that it can seem daunting in the context that we currently work and that we currently work and live in. You hear me say emotion phobic a few times or emotionally phobic. Emotions are regarded as scary, hard and just generally negative. Don't be so emotional. Take the emotion out of it. Yet as Mark says it's our feelings and emotions that drive our behavior. The ad industry has been wise to this for the better part of the last 70 or 80 years, but it wasn't in their interest for us to be self-aware about our own psychology. Times have changed. We see emotional intelligence being accepted as a concept, and many of today's leaders using modern human-centric people management styles like Didier Elzinga from Culture Amp from episode 17, they're using this stuff and doing really well. But the old school traditional approaches of, to leadership, you know, it's, it's days or numbers. I th and I think a lot of people are secretly terrified. The feeling stuff is regarded as foreign and scary and not to be trusted. But it's really simple. Care about your people. Show an interest in them as human beings. Advocate for them. Nurture their growth. When you, and then you can start to think about if people are feeling safe and valued, and you'll already be on your way to creating that kind of environment. Change takes time, and it calls upon us to be patient, determined, resilient, and humble. There's so much to be learned here. I really like the idea of making love work-related, and shifting out of our phobia of emotions. Where are you at with your relationship to emotions, yours and others? Are you comfortable expressing how you feel? Or do you feel emotions just get in the way? How do you respond when people in your team express their feelings? How welcome are emotions where you work? Are some feelings okay and others not so much? 
Even those of us who identify with emotional intelligence and sing its praises get uncomfortable with dealing with our own and others' emotions in certain contexts. And I wonder what it would take to change the context and be more welcoming of emotions and expressing how we feel. Yeah, there's some skills to be learned there, and that's some of the stuff that I'm writing about in my book. And the thing is, those who persist past their aversion and get curious about things like leading from the heart will find a very compelling story in Mark's work and his book. And yes, it's backed by research, giving our rational brain some peace. There's a huge opportunity here. And for some it will be daunting, for others it will be welcome, for many it will be both. This is another idea whose time has come. You can find links to Mark's book leading you can you can find links to Mark's book Lead from the Heart in the show notes, plus his LinkedIn profile and articles. For past and future episodes and for my blog, you can find more at tathrastreet.com. You can also find me on Facebook and LinkedIn. My name is spelled Tathra Street, T-A-T-H-R-A-S-T-R-E-E-T. It's an unusual one, so it's, it's reasonably easy to find. Thanks for listening to Tall Poppy, where we explore leadership from a different angle, where we consider our own leadership regardless of our role at work, in business, and life. Help your fellow listeners with a short review to inform their choice to listen or not, because this is not for everyone. So thank you for being part of the Tall Poppy Tribe. We'll see you next week with another great conversation about leadership.